morning is Palm Sunday. Click my mic on. I want to read you from skipping ahead in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 19, and here is 10 verses for all of us. So uh, after telling the story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. Um, if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. I'd been a little nervous if I was disciples. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked him, uh, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. So with that in mind, there's a Bible project that both goes along with that and I think points to as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. So take a look at this. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls, and far out on the hills we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news! And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as 
the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. News. Awesome. All right, kids, now you can get downstairs. Good news. Say that out loud to yourselves as you head down. Good news. Because what I thought when I was a kid is that church and the gospel meant sitting in church for two hours every Sunday morning. And that wasn't such good news to me. So, uh, but now, firmly, I'm thankful for those times. Uh, because I know they played a role in me now seeing like, oh, yes, good news. And it's not about these four walls as much as about the very truths of God into our hearts. Uh, and having an answer to every worry, problem, evil that we've seen, not only this last week, but in all of life. So it's really incredible. Um, in the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, I mean, it's fun because it's like, part of that Easter tradition, you know, in the way that Christmas has things leading up to it. It's like, oh yeah, Palm Sunday is a part of the fanfare of Easter. And Easter just brings about a lot of great memories, maybe some bad memories too. 
um, a lot of great memories because it's those times when a lot of us can set aside certain selfishness and feel united as a family. Like, oh, my parents were fighting that weekend. Or we had a really big meal together and my cousins were there. All these things like, oh, Easter. Um, but the sad part is about Palm Sunday is that it is tragic uh, that there is real goodness to it. Like Jesus gave a little glimpse of the glorification of the Messiah. And that's awesome. Uh, and uh, the, the words to the Pharisees there, like, hey, listen, don't, uh, don't let them cry out like that. That's blasphemy. And he's like, if the people didn't cry out, the rocks would cheer. And that's, that's quite a big statement. And I think most people think, oh, it's hyperbole by Jesus. He's just being poetic. I'm like, no. And in fact, if you start looking up some of the sounds that the universe is making, um, like things that look inanimate are actually emitting sound. Um, it's pretty fascinating. And it's saying, oh, maybe the, the man who claimed to be the truth, the way, the life, isn't crazy. Maybe he actually knows how he designed the universe. And it gets really fascinating if you like start to look at all the sound waves emitted by things that you do not. We are incapable of knowing they're emitting uh, sounds of perhaps worship and praise. But the tragedy of it is the fact that we go from praise to curses so fast um, in this holy week. And the multitudes of people, as it points to in the triumphal entry, um, that's not their first entry into the gospel, the story. Um, and we get to see it now as we've gone through the gospel of Luke, where we're like, okay, Jesus is on the scene. He, he is born, right? It's Christmas time. And then, uh, so it's like, all right, now 30 years later, this baby is now a presence. That's a man. And he's starting to say some really uh, crazy things. Um, in Luke chapter four, we went over, uh, I think Ken taught on it, where Jesus pulled out the scroll and gave, and Alistair talked about it too, one of the shortest sermons ever. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he read from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives uh, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus goes on to say, uh, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which was crazy talk for anybody who knew anything about the Old Testament and the prophet's uh, words to say, I'm, I'm God, is, wow, this is crazy. And he backed it up with what? Powerful works. He starts to heal in maybe smaller pockets at first, but then word starts to spread. And he, you can see that Jesus envisions this as he's like, all right, quiet here, quiet here. He, he could see his plan, his work, his mission, uh, and it starts to spread. And we come to Luke chapter 6 now, and the multitudes have arrived. Everyone in the region is awake to something is different here. Is it something good for a lot of people? Maybe. Is it something bad for a lot of people? Maybe. Um, there's not a lot of final judgment like, hey, what's this mean? We just know it's not ordinary. And so people are now paying attention. Their, their hearts are stirred. They're awakened. The Pharisees' hearts are stirred within them. Um, they're the, already the bad guys in the story, right? Because we've seen them challenge Jesus when he healed the paralyzed man, um, when his friends lowered him to the roof. And they're like, what are you doing? This is, this, this is blasphemy. Um, challenging him by healing on the Sabbath. This is 
this is sin. You are a sinful man. Um, so their hearts are stirred even in a way that says, no, I do not like you. But many are saying, hey, hang on. Um, this might be the answer to my problems. So the, the multitudes, um, including us today, have a choice to make. Um, and we'll start by looking at the scripture where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6. And we'll start with verses 17 and 19 where it says, When they, uh, Jesus and his apostles and his followers, who we just said, here's my twelve, the master's men. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds, the multitudes. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him. And he healed everyone. And so the multitudes have arrived. And many of the multitudes are sick people. They have that are actively wrong with their lives. And so they came because they are sick and he is powerful is what we get in that little chunk there. They are sick, and he is powerful. So we talked about a little bit in our Sunday school, because, hey, the Gospel of Luke is just, he, Luke's laid it out in some of these themes that are just becoming very clear to me. I've read Luke, I don't know how many times, you've read Luke probably how many times, or haven't read to you. But it's amazing, and I know Grandma Nancy has testified to this often, it's like, hey, your life happens, you read through scripture once, you come back and read it again, maybe five times later, and you're like, how is it coming to me in such a new way of words that I've And it's happening to me as we speak, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things we saw earlier on in these chapters, and we continue to see, is the, the uh, emphasis on Jesus' authority and his power in the Gospel of Luke. So that's why people have came. One of the two reasons. Because, why? Jesus is powerful. It, it almost, it didn't use this exact word, but it, I like the word exude. <laughs> and so it's like Jesus is exuding power. Like you don't even have to, to get right up to him. It's like the power is just radiating from this human. And it's like, what is this power that heals people, um, that can heal people even from far distances? This is really crazy. So that's one reason that Jesus is attracting the multitudes. He's powerful, and the word has spread, and the people are coming. And the other reason is they know that his power can heal their sickness. So they're being convinced or acknowledged because you can't really hide from certain sicknesses, like certain mental diseases today. It's like I could walk here and you, you cannot tell someone has a mental disease by just if you just stand straight. Mm, yeah, depression, anxiety, uh, uh, OCD. Like you can't see a lot of those things. But a lot of other things you like, there's no hiding from it. Right? And ultimately, in our heart's heart, many of us already know we're sick, even if it's not glaringly obvious from the outside. But in many of these people's case, it's not news. Like, I'm sick. I'm a leper. I can't even go home, um, as we talked about with the lepers. We looked at in Jesus' healing of that. So, a, a, they're, he's powerful. Power heals. Let's see him. 
So one of the things that will happen, and is happening even in this room now to probably certain people of us, has happened to me in my lifetime, is both of those things are really important, um, but one without the other doesn't always, doesn't lead to healing, doesn't lead to salvation. What do I mean by that? Jesus is powerful. If I ask you all one by one, yes or no, is Jesus powerful? I'm pretty sure everyone in this room would say, Yes, Jesus is powerful. Okay, great. Um, the other question then, like, are you sick? And this is where I think group in this uh, uh, this group of people would honestly say, ah, <laughs> you know, I'm actually doing pretty well, um, as opposed to a unconditional statement of, yes, I'm deathly sick. Um, you're like, well, my physical body's all right or like no my back is killing me yes i'm sick uh but no like much deeper sense of hey in your heart in your soul are you sick and the answer i think would now after i say this if i come ask you like yes i'm sick but it's like do you really believe that and if you say one without the other yes i'm sick my life's a mess everything i touch turns to dust but jesus is a guy, maybe more of a myth than anything we're basing on 2,000-year-old scriptures. Like, come on. He's not powerful. I'm sick, yes, but he's not powerful. Therefore, I'll just wear my sickness. I'll own it. Or I will go find other means of healing. Other substances can at least give some relief. If not, maybe there's something out there for me that will just truly cure me. And so we have that doesn't lead to healing, right? Because everyone who's tried everything as far as healing on their own ends up leading to the same place of death. Death on the outside and death on the inside. No hope. It all ends. What's your time frame for how long you need to be well or feel well enough? It's just a little bit of healing, okay, for a little while? Or it's like, no, that would only leave me heart sick to have more healing. Like you say, the Rascal, Rascal Flat, no, Diamond Rio song, uh, what would I wish if I had one wish? One more day with you would leave me wishing still for one more day. Just one more day. So what's your time frame uh, that healing counts? Because if you had one more day, wouldn't that day just be dumped with the stress of like this day will end very soon? To me, the only healing that to my own sicknesses that matter is one that lasts forever. Uh, is the only healing that actually satisfies the soul. As opposed to like, no, here's a little taste. Because there are so many things right now that can cure whatever ills you in the short, short term. There are so many things that can make that pain go away. It can numb you to it. How sweet to get some relief. Except you know it's so temporary. Some more temporary than others. And that's why some of us who are not physically sick even are like, I'm fine. Look, I have so much that's good. I haven't had major tragedy hit me or my family. It's like, good. Because if you last as long as any humans last and things stay relatively stable for that amount of time, you have 120 years worth of that and then you're dead. And that's your reality. You'll be as much worm food as the person who was hit with a tragedy when they were an infant. Your lives will be leveled to the same. And what was 120 years? A mist in the relative scope of eternity. And so that's the reality, even though many people don't like that language because it's like, oh, that's Scripture is telling us, like, what's it matter if we're good for a little while? No, eternity is at stake here. So that that really hits home with me. And so, yes, you can say, but he's not powerful. You can also say 
He's powerful, but I'm not sick, which is a problem in itself. And that's where I think, oh, we were part of Jesus. Right? And so we can add the Jesus patch to our jacket, but he really isn't transforming anything but the surface level stuff, um, which we find is sometimes can be heralded by our world as morality. Like, oh, that's a good, good work. But ultimately, where is that good work coming from and what's it achieving for us? And I think that's where we can learn more from this next part of Luke. As to, uh, Luke chapter verses 20 through 26. Just famously titled, The Beatitudes. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets in the way. But what sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. And what sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets it's almost like Jesus was, uh, those words rang true there in that triumphal entry. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? Because he knew and he had sorrow there as he went to Jerusalem and he weeped going into Jerusalem because he knew like, this, this is going to be painful. Okay, so these verses I don't like. I've historically in my life not liked. Because I am selfish. <laughs> and I think about uh, Hebrews 12, which says the word of God's like a double-edged sword that can pierce straight to the heart. And I read about woes to rich people. And I, I've probably told you this. I know I told my mom. Um, when I was young and just seeing how money was tight, I promised, like, I don't know, I promised to myself, but I remember thinking, I want to be rich because I don't like this tension of not having much when we're young. And, and now, honestly, as I think most of you share, it's like, we are right now, we're in a room of rich people, uh, is the reality. Like it's, I don't have any problem saying that. Like you're all very rich um, and we're all very rich. By physical standards, material, like we're all very rich. And it has played out to be true that Sarah and I thankfully do not have financial, a lot of financial tension in our life. Um, and it, it feels good. However, <laughs> that might be just a, a false little symptom because something happens in my heart if I'm saying, whew, I have accomplished, um, I've accomplished prosperity for myself and my family. And then I turn to scriptures like Jesus' words in Luke 6 and see, woe and what sorrow awaits you who are rich. And all of a sudden, I go from a recognition of our family is rich to our family is rich. 
And I don't like these verses. Like, they're incredibly challenging. Because, and, and uh, I remember pastors a few years ago listening to them. It's like, all right, we can go into the woe to the rich and blessings for the poor. And we can be pretty quick. To, and, and people say, uh, Tim Keller said, he's like, people like this version of scripture better in Matthew than in Luke. Because Matthew includes one little phrase there, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so a lot of people are like, ha, huh, see, he's not talking about material things. But I've heard other pastors say, and I think it's like, all right, it's worth listening to. Be very careful if you're rationalizing away what the scripture pretty clearly says. <laughs> and I'm not saying that it's a sin to be rich. I am actually deflecting the whole debate about whether material wealth and what we hold in our own personal ownership of net worth like, all right, we can, I'd, I'd love to talk about that, but that's not even what I want to focus on today. But more so about any time that I'm trying to read scripture and like, that can't be what it means. Doesn't that sound a little risky, right? So I'm not saying that I, oh, now I know the answer because we can read it. Woe to those who are rich and like, great, we should all give everything away. It doesn't seem very logical. It doesn't seem in line with other scriptures we read. However, shouldn't we be pretty diligent in seeking the scriptures out of what is going on here when all of a sudden we say, woe to rich, and like, surely he's not talking about me. That's a red flag for any Christ follower of when Christ says this, and we're like, ah, surely that's not what he meant. Who, ha who else did that happen to? Pharisees, right? So I'm not saying, great, let's give it all away right now. Let's all be abstract poverty for all of us at Fillmore Christian. Welcome to the family. No. However, I think we should be really diligent together to say, what, what does this mean? And why doesn't it mean the exact words that are coming out on the page? Shouldn't we be really careful when we all of a sudden, like I know Dave Ramsey's a famous, you know, like, I, I, from the outside looking in, I'm a little worried how he handles his wealth. I think that says more about me than Dave Ramsey because I think I still have that little boy in me that says, I want to be rich. I like riches. They provide me a lot of safety and security. So there's a lot to talk about there, but again, that's not the gist of what I think is going on here or today for Fillmore Christian. For you, some role-playing um, for you. I think, I think this is the practice of our spiritual lives, is to take scripture and start to challenge our own thinking with it. I've asked you to do this before, but a little more direct today. All right. If you lose your blank, how do you feel? So I have a lot. I've tried to line it up as like increasing in intensity as we go. So if you, you personally, this is for you and me. If you lose your time, how do you feel? There's a lot of ways to lose your time. You might have made a commitment that you're like, ah, this isn't that meaningful to me. Um, you, you might be wasting it away on scrolling through something. You may all of a sudden have a sick kid and all of a sudden time you had to get things done now is gone because you go into care mode and you do, if you lose your time, how do you feel? Maybe time's cut short because you, you know, you get a disease that's going to kill you. That's terminal. All right. If you lose your personality, how do you feel? If I, um, my personality, like, all right, I, I'm a fun lover, right? Sense of humor. What if I lost the ability to have a sense of humor? Like, 
is all of a sudden is my identity changed? If you lost your diligence, you're like, I used to work hard, but now I don't. Now I want to nap all the time. Like, does that change your identity? Does that change how you feel about you and your life? Um, here's something a little more practical. If you lose your hair, um, whether your hair went from colorful to gray or lacking any color, if you lost your hair completely or it's thinning out, and you're like, I'm not the same person. Because I used to be, many of us are defined by our hair or lack thereof. I wasn't looking at Chris Kamer. I wasn't looking at Chris Kamer. <laughs> What if hair? What if Chris came in with an afro next Sunday? Does that change who he is? It's amazing how hair really does identify so many of us, and the the amount of the industry of hair that we'll go to. Um, Sarah blew my mind uh, when I was like talking about you know some like oh that black woman's hair like wow that, she's like that's not real and I'm like what <laughs> and like I didn't understand the differences in cult, you know in people's hair and just how so much goes into like our hair what if you lose it or what if it's not like it was does that change who you are uh, for a lot of us I think we're all like yeah that's a big challenge all of a sudden I'm a different person my identity is different if you lose your hair if you lose your ability uh, what if you lost the use of a limb um, along with ability how about if you lose a sense your senses and uh, it's crazy that we're talking two years uh, now and a, a year and a few months for I know Andy and Sarah and maybe some other you like still have parosmia. I think that's how you say it, right? Um, and in their case, at least you two can function, right? They've lost their sense of taste and smell or at least far, parts of it. Um, many other people right now, their whole lives have been turned upside down because wives can't sleep in the same husband, uh, the bed at their husband because their husband... Um, makes them nauseous. And that would be really sad if you lost that ability to share that intimacy with a spouse. And there's real people right now who are dealing with that loss. Does that change your identity? Does it, it changes your life? Does it change satisfaction in your soul? Uh, eyesight definitely would. Hearing, right? A use of a limb, all these things. Um, it, what would you feel if you lost your community? You say, we kind of have each other's backs here. If I said, hey, folks, Sarah and I need your help, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you'd all show up. Um, what if I lost you all? What if you lost us? What if you lost your, you know, that community that you said, these are kind of my people. I know I would call first if I needed something. What if you lost it um, for whatever reason? Your country, right? The United States has had a strong identity in our lifetimes. And many of you are mourning as we speak because you say, the identity I thought our country had is no longer. What if you lost it? Does that change how you view yourself and where your value lies? You think about Ukrainians even more so right now. Like, all right, country doesn't mean anything like it used to. And that's not new. Like, they were still old war. What if you lost your provision? What if you lost, along with that, um, whether markets, financial markets tanked, or you didn't have the ability to earn income, what if you lost your house, your home, any real estate you have, um, for whatever reason, you know, the government's fully capable of taking that from you by force. You're like, I would fight. Oh, I'm sure you would. And they have a lot bigger weapons than you do. It could happen any moment. 
It's not likely to happen, but it certainly could. And are you lying awake at night because if I lose my land, I will be destroyed? Is that where your identity is at? What if you lost it? Um, your ability to eat food, right? What if you lost food? You are hungry now. What if you lost your security? You lose your home. You lose a lot of your security. Uh, the main part, like I think some people are like, oh, I could be homeless. I could sleep outdoors. Yeah, but when you're sleeping to have people fully access accessible to you to abuse you, like... Yeah, to be homeless, uh, I, don't, I think it's hard to really understand what it means to like, with everything, like someone could totally come and abuse you. Um, kids living homeless in other country, the main risk isn't sleeping outdoors in the cold and the hot. The risk is being taken in as sexual slaves. Like that's the primary risk of being a child homeless in countries that are right now. What if you lost your spouse? How does that change your identity if you lose your spouse? And then the final one, which I use often because to me it's like the single hardest thing. I would rather lose my sight. I would rather lose all my IRA money than lose one of my children, even though some of you in this room have already seen that happen. Um, but that's like, if I lost my kids, does that change my identity? Does it change the depths of satisfaction um, for eternity? I know it changes life, right? It just circumstances are different in that immediate aftermath. But does it change where my value is as a creation of God? So some of you probably shut me off while I went through those scenarios because you're like, too painful to think about. I really think it's important for you to think about. Because if they're too painful to think about, then that means you're also saying that Christ is not powerful enough to heal the sickness. And so you're taking one part of that equation off that equals salvation and healing and life forevermore. And so... I think it's important for us to examine ourselves and realize where our identity is placed on something else besides the power of the Messiah, who is claiming to be the Messiah with power and coming to show that power by giving himself up to, to the, the Jewish teachers of the law and the Romans, being crucified on the cross, and showing his power over even death by rising after three days. I hope you would be brave enough to do this exercise and do it often and to talk with your spouse um, and probably not always late at night because that's usually the time we sit with each other like, all right, life's done. Like, let's, let's talk about this. Like, late at night, we're tired. <laughs> so maybe take a morning breakfast date or something and like, hey, can I ask you these questions? And you're like, you're going to ruin a good breakfast with those types of questions. <laughs> I think it's so important though um, for us to be able to examine ourselves and say, where are we not humbled by the gospel, the good news. Where, where are we still posting up our own castles to say we've earned salvation when it's like, no, we have no goodness to throw up to God. Um, it's only by Christ and his righteousness that he's put on us, um, that he's given us um, by dying on the cross for us. So why, I was like, this isn't about the poor and how we reach out to the poor. However, I will say, um, when helping hurts, and thank you for going through those because, yeah, I, I don't know which one I'm on. Um, but when helping hurts, as far as like, hey, how do we treat the poor? That, that book, so far, we're kind of still kind of primed up. I think this week we start to get into some practical things. Hey, I don't like, and in fact, why don't you guys, or why do you guys give to the people um, with cardboard signs on the uh, intersections? I won't, like, why don't you give to them? This is a real question. Yeah, 
fearful to buy drugs or alcohol. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you give him your card for the food pantry. And he's like, you got any meat there? <laughs> Brenda said earlier during Sunday school that someone posted on Facebook, one of the clients of the food pantry said, I didn't even get any meat. So it was, it was a story to say. Um, so there's research about how it's just not helpful to give to those people. I'm not, you know, for those of you who are like, great, I give. You'd imagine why many people do give, though, because you're sitting there in your car, you know, in your $20,000 car, and like, oh, I have plenty. I have 20 bucks. What is it? All right, fine. Here, take it. And that guilt probably drives many people to go ahead and hand something out. Now, you've given, and that's not me saying that you are wrong to give to those people. Like, that's, that's a, you may be absolutely the, the most obedient thing in Christ might be to give to those people. In my heart right now, though, I know, um, like Katie, that, hey, research says, and I've, I've talked to these people, it's not helpful. Um, and so, instead, uh, I tell my kids, don't you ever give to those people in the intersection. I've said that, and you can challenge me on it. It's like, don't. But, that doesn't mean, um, and that can relieve guilt, but if guilt uh, relief is your primary mission there, for me to say, it, like, oh, now, Hannah, you don't have to feel guilty when you drive by. It's like, no, you're already guilty, Hannah, whether or not you give to that person. Like, you're already sick, Hannah. Don't, don't forget that, Billy and JJ. Your dad's sick. And it's not going to get better if I just hand somebody a 20 a couple times a week as I pass them on the intersection. It's going to get better when I realize that my sickness and my crimes were paid for by a Savior. And then out of that, we have a chance to be salt and light to this world. Of which point, that's what's led me into doing this book study together when helping hurts because I'm excited to help those in poverty. Why? Because I have so much to give them. No. Because I was in poverty and I've been saved and I have no worries where I once had a ton and burden of worries. And out of that goodness, it's like, great, I hope others can feel the lightness and the joy and the leaping for joy that is having having been in poverty and been released from those chains. And that is exactly what I think Christ is talking about. That this isn't about, what was my last slide? This isn't about helping the poor. And then to my next slide, this is about being the poor. How do you view yourself? I'm one who can help the poor or no, I am the poor. I am the one in poverty. And that to me is, is what the message of Christ is when he's laying out these words. Like if you think you're rich, check again. If you think your belly's full, you'll be right back at the table eating and filling more. But if you know there's something within you that cannot be satisfied, but anything this world has to offer, it's going to drive you where? To repentance and to me. It's going to drive the sick person to the doctor. As he said in uh, Luke, chapter, <clears throat> Luke chapter 5. It's not when he's talking about Levi calling him Matthew. Did Matthew have material poverty? No, he was one of the richest guys in the region, in the neighborhood. But Matthew realized he was poor. He was in poverty because there was a heart sickness in him that made him say, I'm turning in the books that give me all my privilege today and I'm following this nomad from Nazareth. 
And that's when Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And so these themes, I think out of that is the exact theme that Jesus is talking about on this sermon on the the mount or the large level area. Sermon of the large level area doesn't ring like Sermon on the Mount does. Um, Say, hey, are you sick? Do you believe I'm powerful? And then that combination allows us to have the healing that lasts not for a lifetime, but forever. So I said these verses always bother me because it made me feel extremely guilty as a kid. Like, oh, I have some. I just get a hold of something. Now I have to give it away. Like, that's not fun. And the reality is Wakefield is really bad at giving. Like, I am so selfish on my own. I would imagine you are too. But Christ is the only power that can take away that selfishness. Where instead now, it's like, come on, Fillmore Christian, we have to give more. It's like, no, we have to recognize our sickness more together, which leads us to Christ, and then the giving starts because it just comes so naturally out of those who know Christ and are filled with the Spirit of God. That out of our salvation, there are good works prepared in advance for us to do. We don't have to do the preparing. It's a lot of work to like organize food pantries and all these things. Like, it's so much work, and I don't want a piece of it. Except when Christ is motivating, it's like, okay, what can I do? I'm, I'm excited now. It's like the same things, but just flip the order, and it takes on a whole new power. And it relieves us of our guilt that we aren't good enough because we're not doing enough. And it's like, no, we're already sick. We're already guilty. And Christ sets us free. When we get to heaven, why will we tell him that we should get into his kingdom, that we should enjoy the kingdom of God? Because I was working at the food pantry because I gave probably $4,000 to people on the intersections. Um, because I went and knocked and checked on my neighbor when they were sick. Really? Because here's a transcript of your thoughts, Wakefield. And it doesn't look so good, even though those few things you mentioned are a very small percentage of your total acts of your life. Instead of like, why should you be here? Why should you get in the kingdom of heaven? Because Christ gave me his righteousness. And that's it. That's it. And it just relieves from sinful people. Chains break up Christ's righteousness. It's so good. It's so exciting. And so, yeah, you don't have to do more for the poor. But you'll find that when you have Christ, you will. And a whole lot more than that. Not because, not because you need to, have to, you earn it, but because it's our joy in Christ and we recognize I'm the poor one here. I am the poor one, and I've been saved. So where do you identify as you go through that list of things you might lose? Are you happy in this life, satisfied in your soul, because you have your senses, your ability, your hair, your personality, your provision, your job, your security, your spouse and children? I hope we could be a people that say, you. I'm not wanting to lose any of those things, but if they were taken away, you don't touch the most important thing to me. And that lets us be bold as we see the world around us falling apart. It's okay with the news reports because you can't touch what's most important to us. You can't touch it. Christ has sealed it tight. There is no amount of torture that can get after what Christ has given those who believe and have faith. There's no amount. I don't want it, but I'm willing to endure it. Christ is that important. Jesus later calls it a treasure in the field, right? You would sell, you would get rid of everything else to get this one field that has this treasure, to buy this one pressure 
precious pearl, you would sell everything else. Well, I think that everything else is kind of that list I gave. Would you give up your family? And that's what we were talking about in Sunday school. Like, ah, I think there's some things we're still not really comfortable saying we give up. And I think we're kind of reliving out of what I would James Dobson's focus on the family and how, like, I, I, I really trust that James Dobson is a Christ follower. But I think there was an ulterior consequence family, the focus went to the family instead of Christ. And I think James Dobson attempted to have centered, but what we found is a lot of families trying to be put together and they forgot Christ. There was a temptation there to be like, no, the idol is the family, but Christ comes say, hey, you, you need to be able to leave your family as well. And that seems hard. It's glorifying to God to have and take care of my family. Yes, taken out of context, you can totally butcher that. However, is your family your God or is Jesus your God? It's something we should all because I think some of us might be hanging on to some things like this, but even those important good things, anytime they're this, instead of offered up like this to Christ, that becomes what you... This identifies me. Christ. Let Christ identify us and nothing else. Make sure I didn't miss my last point here. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for the power of Christ and for the recognition of our sickness. Please let us not pretend we're not sick. If we don't believe we're sick, if it's in me, Father, if it's in any of us in this room today, uh, bring whatever it will take to show us the depths of our own depravity so that we may let go and fully offer ourselves to Christ. Renew in us a new and clean heart, O God, through our Savior and the Messiah. And as we go through this Easter week, let it hit us in a whole new way of just how good you are and how far we fall short. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.